Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Dreaded Question. I'm Lily Torre, and I'm thrilled to share this week's episode with my amazing guest, Billy Bustamante. Billy is an actor, a director, a choreographer, a teacher at the Jen Waldman Studio, and a photographer with his own studio, Billy B Photography. He is an unbelievably generous, kind, and funny person who is driven by such strong and clear purpose. But before we start today's episode, I'm so excited to share with you a special offer from upcoming season two guest, Ari Axelrod. Ari teaches a masterclass called Bridging the Gap, which is designed to help musical theater performers learn how to perform in the appropriate style for cabaret. You'll learn more about that later in the season, but in the meantime, if you'd like to see Ari in his element, Ari has graciously offered TDQ's listeners 10% off tickets for his upcoming cabaret at Birdland, a celebration of Jewish Broadway, which honors the songs and stories of Jewish composers and their contributions to the American musical. We're talking Irving Berlin, Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Schwartz, Carol King, and more. The Cabaret is on Wednesday, November 20th at 7 p.m. at Birdland Theater in NYC. When you purchase your tickets, make sure to use the code ARIA10. That's A-R-I-A-10 for 10% off. I'm including the code below in the show notes, as well as a link to purchase tickets. I hope to see you there. So let's dive into Billy Bustamante's answer to the dreaded question. So, Billy Bustamante, what are you up to? Hi, Lily. Hello. <laughs> um, what am I up to? I will say what I normally say, and then I will say what I would love to really talk about based on my interaction on the street just before we met. Yeah. Um, normally, when I get asked that question, I respond with the following script, which I didn't intend to be a script, but automatically just came out consistently. Yeah. I, I have found myself saying, life is great, I'm tired all the time, but life is great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that sandwich. <laughs> yes. And I can, for people who don't know me well, <laughs> I want to disclaim that yes, every time I've said life is great, I have genuinely meant that life is great. Yeah. Um, and I genuinely am tired all the time. <laughs> Um, but that, that tends to be how I answer that question. Yeah, tired all the time, but damn, life is good. That means life is good. <laughs> it's true. And it's funny, I find myself saying that to people with like the biggest smile on their face because I'm genuinely happy to see whoever I'm normally talking to. Yeah. And I walk away with a bit of a pep in my step, knowing yeah. that I am indeed tired all the time. <laughs> um, but can I talk about what just happened to me on the street? Please, I would love to hear it. Um, it's very TDQ apropos. Yes! I think in response to how I first answered your question, that tends to be the script for people who I know on a superficial basis. Yes. Um, my balcony friends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, in your arena, they would be in the balcony. Yes, and um, I had a very chance interaction, a run-in on the street on 8th Avenue as I was walking to JWS today, um, where I ran into an arena friend. But an arena friend that I had not seen and had any kind of meaningful interaction with in years. Yeah. Um, and you know, we hugged on the street. You know, we took off our sunglasses, took off our headphones, yes. and then you know, automatically started like talking and asking questions. And then he asked me, "Oh my gosh, what are you up to?" And 
I, for the life of me, could not think of anything to say. I had a big smile on my face, and I was like, And, you know, eventually words came out, you know, like we got to catch each other up in an authentic, actual way. Right. Um, and then we, you know, went about our ways. But as I left that interaction and kept walking here, I, I thought to myself, I, this is literally what the podcast is about. It is. And I literally could not, couldn't come up with a single thing automatically to say. And I had to unpack that for a little bit because it really took me aback. Because right. I, I tend to think that I'm quite good at answering that question. Yeah. You have <laughs> Whatever. a script. Yes. Um, and I had to think about what took the words out of my mouth. And I came to realize that I had gotten so used to uh, dealing with people I know superficially in that capacity yeah. that I had almost forgotten what it was like, what it felt like to have that question come from someone who you know is genuinely interested in what you right. have to say about it. Yes. <laughs> who you know is not necessarily talking about wanting to know what you're rehearsing next or what the right. next contract is, but is genuinely interested in what you have to say. Right. Um, and that took me aback. Yeah. And it was very interesting to realize. So to that, I, I guess I would say I need to keep working on that answer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're so right though. It's like we you can develop these scripts or whatever and it it kind of it answers the the first question, the unspecific question. Right. And then people will usually ask what what they're really trying to ask, right. you know? But when you're with someone who you have that much history with and who yeah, who you don't need that superficial answer because you're not necessarily trying to protect yourself from anything. Yeah. And it can be hard because it's almost like a Rolodex really quick, like, oh, there's so much, like, what do I say? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, what do you want to know about? And there's, totally. it, it has brought up for me because, you know, Jen Waltman's mic drop moment in mm-hmm. season one oh, yeah. of responding with, what do you mean? Absolutely. I've been doing a lot of noodling and a lot of thinking about, you know, what do we mean? And especially with people who are multi-hyphenates. Mm-hmm. It can be kind of hard. Like, I don't really know what to ask. Like, you're doing so much, and I don't know which one you're prioritizing right now, and I don't know, like, what's going on. And so I want to know whatever you're willing to tell me about. Great. But it feels like neither of us is really giving the other person that permission. You're so right. You are so right. And it's funny. I think that as I dive deeper into the question, or as I have been diving deeper into the question, since you asked me to be a part of this. Um, The other thing I've realized is that once I answer the question, I tend to ask my version back. Yeah. Um, Quite, once again, quite automatically. And I do think, once again, it's something that didn't start off as a script, but has ended up being a script. Like, I tend to genuinely be interested in what people's lives are, how people's lives are. Um, So I tend to find myself saying, Life is great. I'm tired all the time. Life is great. Chatter, chatter, chatter. What about you? What is your life these days? How is your life these days? That tends to be the next phrase that comes out of my mouth. And it's, once again, very interesting to hear that feedback, whatever I get back. But I I feel like clarity in terms of how you ask and how you respond has been something I'm really thinking about. Yeah. I don't think I've crystallized any, like, perfect response, and I don't know that one exists. Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) But I do think there is something to... I remember someone saying he was taught to say, how are you, not what are you up to, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? Yeah. Um, And I think that the kind of 
distinguishment there, that's a word, yeah. uh, is you're asking about the person. Like, I don't yeah. really care what you're doing. I care about you and how you are. And, yeah. you know, if you're answering life is good, then that makes me happier than, yeah. like, I'm going to be on, in a Broadway show because I, I don't know how you feel about that. You're, you know? Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I'm so glad you had that moment right before you came uh, came to have this conversation. Well, thank you so much for being brave enough to come answer this question because I know that it can be a little intimidating. But uh, for the listeners who don't know this, part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show was I heard your episode of Studio Time, which is an incredible podcast. I will link Billy's episode in the show notes if you haven't heard it. And you know, I knew you through JWS. We had met in passing, but I felt like I got to know you on such a deep level on that podcast, and I felt like you were so in alignment with TDQ, with me personally. And one big thing, I, I guess I'm just bringing it out right out of the gate, yeah. because it, it really struck me to a core. Wow, we haven't even talked about all the things that you do yet. <laughs> But you do a lot of things, and we'll get to that. <laughs> but one of the things that you talked about in the podcast is that you had always known that you were going to do many things. You had never really thought of yourself as like, well, I'm just going to be an actor. You didn't necessarily have that tunnel vision. And you know, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but that this is, is what correct. I took from it. That is correct. And you kind of touched on something that blew my mind, which is that there is a certain level of privilege involved in having the luxury of thinking that you can just be an actor because there is so much available to you. And you spoke about, you know, when you were graduating college, you know, people weren't casting the way that they are now. There wasn't as much color conscious casting happening, which we need to talk about that. <laughs> um, and, you know, you had a very realistic viewpoint of like, I'm gonna need something else to sustain myself. It really was a lesson that really turned my frame of thinking completely on its head when I was um, coming of age as an artist, I like yeah. to say. Um, and it's funny, as I started to unpack, you know, the older I get, oh gosh, <laughs> the older I get, um, the more I'm able to zoom out around the circumstances surrounding that, that idea, that idea yeah. of like the privilege around doing one, being able to do one thing or choosing to do one thing. Um, and yes, I do agree. I do think that there is inherently a level of privilege in being able to do do one thing or choose to do one thing. Um, and I have no problem tipping my hat to people who do have that privilege. No, it's um, amazing. Yeah, and I think the shift, that, the mental shift that I had to make early on was thinking of thinking of this idea as less as a constriction or less as a lack of privilege, but as a way, as the ultimate privilege to me. As an opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The idea that why would, you know, the training that I was lucky enough to get, the lessons I learned from the mentors I was lucky enough to have, um, innately gave, gave me, helped me uh, excavate and discover so many multiple skills, so many multiple ways to be an artist. Why would I choose to limit myself to just one? Yeah. Um, that was a big lesson that I had to learn early on that Jen helped me learn. Yeah, but you know, it's kind of amazing that you could hear that because I think it was actually the day that the first ever episode of TDQ premiered. I happened to be working in a town really close to where I went to college. Mm. And my professor had said, why don't you come visit? Like, I would love to see you. And I came and visited and she brought me into one of their classes and I was telling them about the podcast. I was like, I just aired today. <laughs> 
and I was talking about the premise behind it, and my professor kind of had this moment, and she was like, this is blowing my mind because I'm suddenly realizing why when we tell you all that you're good at other things, why you look panicked. <laughs> because you think I'm telling you not to be an actor. But what I'm telling you is you have an amazing eye for photography or like you would be a really great director or you know, your essays are amazing. You should consider writing. Yeah. yeah. But what so many young actors hear is you should do that instead. Yeah. Don't be an actor. You're not good enough. And so, yeah, you panic. You don't even hear this gift that someone is giving you of telling you something you're good at. You are so right. And props to your teacher, whoever that is, for keeping on, keeping on, because I think it's a great thing to be able to share with your students. Um, I think that leads me to like another discovery that I had as I you know, continue to zoom out around the circumstances surrounding that idea. The idea of expectation of just doing one thing, yeah. or just being an actor in the industry. Right. And, you know, I, I think back to the lessons I was taught from my parents, mm -hmm. and I, as I get older, I continue to relearn valuable lessons from my parents. Yeah. Um, but you know, my parents were, came from the baby boomer generation, mm -hmm. where success walked hand in hand with the idea of one career, one job for decades, and then you retire. Yep. And there is automatically a part of being actor that is in opposition with that whole convention. Oh yeah. So already it's a it's a deviation. <laughs> Huge one. A scary deviation for your children to make. Um, and now, given the new the new uh, shape and nature of the industry, even that idea of success as being only an actor, I feel is completely blown out of the water. Yeah. I feel like even, you know, I've done a couple of Broadway shows now and all, almost everyone I know working on Broadway, even consistently, have, have learned to activate some other interest. Yes. Some other means of income. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's smart from an income standpoint. Yeah. You never know when a Broadway show is going to close and a lot of people think, once I'm in a Broadway show, like, I'm good, you know, like, I'll be a <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I mean, sometimes it is. Some people sometimes are it lucky, is. But, you know, you, you can't know that. And so you have to prepare for the possibility that that won't happen. Yeah. But I also think beyond that practical level, which is a really good reason to do those things, just to have something else and to fuel yourself and to have things that don't necessarily require someone else's permission. Totally. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's funny, you know, the the times where I was fortunate enough to be in a long run of a commercially lucrative show, um, where I was just doing one thing every day, eight times a week, um, I can look back and look at those times as being wonderful times, yeah. but also some of the most artistically stagnant parts of my of my life. Yeah. Um, so I had to choose to activate my artistry in, an, in another way. Yes. And you know, reminded me that yes, I am used to and I prefer to be activating multiple cylinders, firing multiple cylinders yeah. at all times. Um, and I know that's not the case for everybody, but to me, I feel I'm I'm better yeah. at life <laughs> yeah. when I'm firing on all eight cylinders artistically. And I would argue most people are. I, I, I don't so think too. everybody necessarily needs to have another business per se, but right. you know, someone was saying recently, I think it was a podcast I was listening to, like, we don't really have hobbies anymore. You know, <laughs> people don't like 
sew or garden yeah. or like do these things that they do just because they love them. Yeah, totally. You know, we're so encouraged to monetize things, which can be really amazing, especially for artists and freelancers. Right. But can be really toxic. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But speaking of all of these cylinders firing, let's talk about what some of them are. Okay. <laughs> Our listeners are like, what the hell does he do? I know, totally. <laughs> Just found him on the street. <laughs> Here's the rundown call. So um, I've learned to talk about my life um, as a big pie. Yes. I try to equate most of my life to food because that's normally what happens. It's amazing. <laughs> if, you, if you think of my life as a pie chart, um, there is a performer slice, there is an other side of the table slice, which I lump in directing, choreo choreography, teaching, uh, producing, um, and a photographer slice. Um, so I always have those three slices present at all times. I've never actually, maybe in the past 10 years, removed a slice. Um, but the ratios and proportions will shift depending on the moment. Um, I've spent most of my career in the performer capacity, knowing that eventually the end up is to direct and choreograph. And so now I'm, being, I'm able to direct and choreograph more, and the photography gives me the financial and creative freedom to pick and choose when I want to perform or when I want to be on the other side of the table. Yeah, and I mean, that's a huge blessing. What made you start doing photography? You know, I was always a visual artist. I was actually a visual artist before I was a performing artist. Huh. Um, when high school, well, like middle school, Billy was, you know, riding with my sisters to their rehearsals huh. <laughs> um, and had very limited musical ability, had no physical rhythm. <laughs> um, I was big into uh, drawing and I was, you know, I was sure that I was going to be a comic book artist. Wow, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That muscle has completely atrophied. You know, then I discovered performing in theater and um, how much of a, a, a drug that, that became for me. Um, so now that's where my artistic energy is funneled into. So uh, when I was in music, I always had uh, like a visual art side of myself. Um, and eventually that, that led to like picking up a camera and just taking pictures. So, you know, I was one of those kids in photography class in high school, like developing film. That's so cool. Yeah, so like as a, grad, as a high school graduation present to myself, I bought myself a, a decent 35 millimeter camera. Nice. Which I took with me to college in Philadelphia. And uh, I was, I guess like one or two months into my first year at UArts, University of the Arts in Philly, um, I had a random classmate come up to me and say, hey dude, I hear you have a camera, I have a, I have a callback at a theater, I'd like the theater up, up the street in a couple of weeks, can you wanna like take my headshot? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we, uh, Did that occur to you before? Or were never! You? That's so funny. <laughs> And then, so, so we like hopped into uh, a light-filled dance studio that, you know, as in our on campus and, you know, we messed around for a couple of hours with a couple of rolls of film. And within the course of that year, word spread uh, so quickly that I was able to quit my waiting tables job at the local COSI <laughs> on 12th and Walnut for my Philly folks. Um, <laughs> And I was charging a whopping like $30 per client. That's incredible. <laughs> and I was just like shooting all the students at UArts, take, uh, shooting their headshots. That's amazing. And so I'm assuming you found yourself really enjoying that and... Yeah, you know, it, um, 
throughout college, I knew that there was a director side of me. Yeah. However untapped it was, I knew that it was there. And I realized that I, got, I could, through working with the camera, interact with actors on a different playing field, in a different capacity, yeah. speaking a different language um, that I, than I could as an actor-to-actor relationship. Yeah. So I feel like I was, you know, inadvertently flexing those directorial muscles behind the camera before, before I even knew that I was. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like I was moderately successful as a performer in the Philly area when I left school. So I kind of just made my way through the equity circuit in Philly for a couple of years and knew that when I moved to New York that I would need some other supplemental income. So that's when Billy B Photography became a business. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that just worked out so well. It really did. <laughs> it really did. That the years from senior year of college to like first couple of years in New York City um, really like solidified my belief in God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my belief in a higher power, whatever you want to call him or her. Yes. yes. Um, but I knew that there was someone, something watching over me. Yes. Um, making sure that I was okay because things really did just work out wonderfully. Not too easily, but like just right. The way it was, it should. Yeah. That's really amazing. And then, so you're, you were saying that you have always, you always had an interest in directing anyway. How did that come to pass for you? Well, um, I really have to thank my mentors and teachers at UArts because one of the biggest lessons, and I dare say the most valuable lesson I learned from there, is that I was training to be an artist first and then a performer second. Yes. Yeah, the, the title could change, though the capacity could change, but I was training to be an artist first. And I feel like the mentors that I had there uh, really instilled that in me. So when I um, was in voice lessons with my voice teacher slash college mentor, I call him my Philly mentor, Forrest McClendon, um, you know, I would like, I like almost like, it felt like coming out. I was like, I, I feel like I really want to be a director. Yes. <laughs> and, and he said, yes, boo. Yes. <laughs> he like slammed his hand on the piano. He was like, yes, I'm do that. What a great response. Yeah, it was great. And um, so like, you know, I like dipped my toe in, in the yeah. university level. Like I directed, new composer song cycle and um, I ended up directing my senior showcase wow that's so cool (laughs) it was cool because we didn't have like a a university sanctions showcase at that moment at that point so we kind of my class kind of got together and um, I was elected to direct it wow (laughs) so that was technically my New York directing debut there you go (laughs) get that out of the way you know check but then, you know, after that, I, you know, I moved to New York, was lucky enough to be performing quite consistently uh, in the regional market. So yeah. I would come to New York, sublet for a couple of months, yeah. leave for, to do another contract somewhere else in the country for a couple of months, back and forth. Um, and then eventually I started developing relationships with uh, directors, choreographers that I trusted slash trusted me. And then I started to ask to assist and volunteer my services to assist. Um, which led to like a good three or four years of me performing, but then also being involved in some behind the table capacity, whether it be assisting, associate, dance captaining. Um, But I I started to take steps towards that other side of my career that way. Um, And I guess there came a point, I would say maybe five or six years ago, where I realized that I've 
at that point, learned everything I, I could learn from observing yeah. and helping, helping articulate someone else's vision. And I needed to be responsible for my own vision and articulating that to the world or to at least a group of people. <laughs> um, so that's when I started to shift and look towards, uh, shift my focus towards actually being in the driver's seat, in the director's chair, the choreographer's chair, actually generating material, uh, being responsible for a room and a process. Yeah. And what would you say are some of the things that you've learned about directing from being an actor and about acting from being a director? Ooh, this is such a good question. <laughs> um, I guess when we think of learning about directing through being an actor, I think it's a really special, almost like sacred thing to be able to really trust your creative team as an actor. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I really feel doesn't happen 95% of the time. I think you're right. We are contracted and paid to do what our creative team prescribes us to do, yeah. but to actually enter into a process with genuine trust, A, there's usually not enough time for it, Right. Um, and B, that trust is usually not earned. Yeah. Um, so I, well, I've been able, I was fortunate enough to be in processes as an actor where there was a deficit of trust <laughs> and a surplus of trust. Yeah. And to see the product um, both in the rehearsal room and on stage that resulted in either side of the spectrum taught me a lot about the kind of director that I wanted to be. Yes. Taught me a lot about how I wanted to treat actors who, that I was collaborating with, how I wanted to be responsible for the energy and the environment that I created. Um, so that was the biggest lesson I learned from being on the acting side of things. Um, now that I direct more and I'm on the other side of the table more, I and I still perform. Like I, I think you know the next gig that I'm doing now is in a performer capacity. I am more and more amazed about what this generation of performers is capable of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because. I'm 38 now, <laughs> um, and when I look at, when I encounter students graduating from college, graduating from high school, yeah. um, and even like, you know, people in their 20s who are like still trucking it, um, I am amazed at the level of commitment, the level of, um, the level of professionalism, that I, you know, had to work throughout my twenties to achieve yeah. um, and to learn. Um, to me, that really makes me excited for what the future of our industry um, has in store. Yeah. Because um, if these are the people, especially like when I think of like the young young folk, I just finished uh, choreographing a production of Matilda down in Virginia, and I was working with some children, yes. like eight, nine, ten, eleven year olds, and some high school students, and to see the level of professionalism, the level of artistry yeah. from 11-year-olds um, yeah. really makes me excited and makes me think that we're all going to be all right if we, if we don't screw it up for them. <laughs> I could not agree with you more. One of the big pieces of feedback I got from listeners from season one was that they're really interested in people who straddle both sides of the table, which is kind of why I was asking you some of that information. Yeah. And so part of the reason seems to be that we have a lot of listeners who are actors who are interested in making that jeté over the table. That grand jeté. It is a grand one. <laughs> and I would love to hear advice that you have for someone who wants to make that leap. 
Sure. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, and I guess you could say this is from someone who can still considers themselves to be mid-leap. <laughs> still in the air. Still, still in the air. <laughs> the feet, the legs aren't as high as they used to be, but both feet still in the air. <laughs> I think this is, the vi- this is the biggest piece of advice I give to any artist in any capacity, and it's a lesson that I learned at Jen Walton, at Jen Walton Studio. Um, the idea of comparison being paralyzing. Oh, yes. Yeah? If you're looking to your left and to your right, it is impossible to move forward. Um, so the sooner I allowed myself to be on my own singular, unique path as an artist, the less I worried about what he or she, they, to my left or right, had, didn't have, got, didn't get. Um, and how that, in some way, fed some false narrative of my worth yeah. and my success. Um, so to my first piece of advice would, would be to keep your eyes on the prize, keep moving forward down your own path, sometimes with more faith than uh, actual proof. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but worry less about what might be happening on the periphery. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I think about transitioning to the other side of the table, um, one of the things that I found the most success with was you know, finding people I trusted. Yeah. Finding directors, who, uh, people on the other side of the table, directors, choreographers, teachers, stage managers. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, stage managers. Yeah. Praise, <laughs> them. <laughs> Praise them. Um, who were able to um, consistently establish that sense of trust. Yeah. Um, to me, that was a really um, eye-opening lesson to learn in terms of what consistently manifested and maintained trust yes. between the two sides of the table. My first equity contract uh, was directed by uh, Kent Gash and choreographed by Francis Jew and Darren Lee. Um, Francis and Darren are two artists that I have kept close to my heart. Um, and Kent now, I think, runs uh, the new studio at Tisch. Um, and they're lucky to have him. Um, those were That was the first time I was able to really see like trust earned and uh, maintained so quickly yeah. and so efficiently, because that was a whirlwind process that I was a part of. Um, I feel like there are people like Alex Timbers right now mm-hmm. and Lee Silverman um, who are working at the top of their fields and are able to consistently uh, establish that level of trust while navigating that amount of stress yeah. <laughs> at working so at the pressure. level that they're working at. I don't mean quality necessarily. I mean no. like the level of money and pressure yes. that surrounds these processes. To be able to like make a safe space for your for your uh, ensemble and your your collab your collaborators is something really special and hard to do at that level. Yes. Um, so I tip my hand to both of them for being able to do that. And I feel like people like Jen, you know, yeah. Jen has created, you know, we are literally sitting in, um, in something Jen has built through trust. Absolutely. Um, and I, I am grateful for that trust. Yes, it's a very unique thing in the city to walk into this space and just, you can feel it, it yeah. resonates. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Trust. Yes. It's a verb and an idea. Yes. Well, I like, because you kind of gave the two pieces of advice, you know, 
the way that I phrase the comparison thing, yeah. which it's not my phraseology, it's a quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. Do not compare. And that involves trust. Yeah. And so you have to trust yourself. Yep. And you have to trust, you have to find the people that you trust and that trust you. Yeah. And I think that that's really the best way in whatever career path you're setting forward to move your, your career forward is to find those people and tell them. Yeah. Tell them, hey, I want to direct. I want to direct more. This is a thing I'm doing. Totally. Oh, you really hit the nail on the head, Lily. Because I think the other lesson in terms of putting all that stuff into practice is putting yourself out there. Yeah. Like you did, but asking for me to be a part of this. You know, I, I feel like it's, there's so many people, especially, I'll say, in my experience, in my generation, that expected things to come to them, yeah. that expected opportunity to find them. Um, and whether or not that's true, I knew that that wasn't true for me. And I needed to seek opportunity out and put myself out there and literally ask for it. Yes. <laughs> and the worst you hear back is no. Is no, but that's not so hard. Yes. Especially if you're an actor, you're used to no. Totally. Like, yeah. And 90% of the time, it was a not now. Yes. And that not now ended up becoming a yes later. Right. Yeah, Jen sometimes phrases that as no to the question that you asked. Sure. If you look back at what the question was, you know, if the question was, do you have time this week for coffee? And they say no. They don't have time this week. Right. They didn't say no, I don't want to get coffee with you. That's right. Yeah, it's a really important distinction. And I think some of it is we just, we're so caught up in our own stuff and yeah. in our own heads that we forget that other people don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's true. Yeah, our, our lives are ours to communicate to others, regardless of how much we post about it. <laughs> exactly. We must be, occasionally, you must actually put it into words to actual people in life space. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, something that you talked about on the Studio Time podcast uh, that came up quite a bit was this idea of being of service sure. to a piece. Mm -hmm. I really responded to that because there's just such a level of generosity to it, and I think it's something that regardless of which creative path you're on, that is something that you should be seeking. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah, you know, um, as 20-something Billy was trying to navigate the, the transition, beginning the transition of performing less, being on the other side of the table more, I, as I got older, I developed a clearer sense of what my skill set as a performer was, what my like mutant powers as a performer were. Yes. Um, the things that were uniquely mine, the things that no one else could bring to a room in a performing capacity better than I could. Right. And as I looked at that group of qualifications, that group of skills, um, and, and looked at it in relation to opportunities that were out there, I saw very few um, instances where things aligned, mm -hmm. where my mutant powers, my superpowers as a performer, um, spoke to and addressed the needs of a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, more often I saw, I would think, oh, this person's better for this than I am as a performer. Mm -hmm. um, when I started to think about what made me helpful to a process at large, what uh, qualities I brought to a, a rehearsal room, not just in a performer capacity, I began to see more things lining up. Yeah. I began to see uh, more processes and opportunities um, 
that I could be of use to, that I could be helpful to. Right. Um, so I started to think about, I started to apply that litmus test to any artistic venture that I uh, was presented with. I feel like Jen talks about it as like a, a fuck yes or a hell no. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that it, my, I think my version of that was, you know, could I be of use here in this capacity? Right. And if the, if the answer was yes, then I, it, it almost behooved me that I was required to do it. Right. Um, so I feel like that's the short answer to that question. You know, as I, when I think of being of use in a larger scale, I do think that clarity of purpose is something that is lacking in our industry. Yeah. Um, and I do feel it's something that's lacking in the nature of our society as a whole. The, yes. the idea of the gig economy, mm -hmm. the influencer culture, yes. um, the idea that things are so transactional. Um, and even people who consider themselves to have careers, I would say don't necessarily consider themselves to have callings. Yeah. And I've, I think I have actually found a calling in being of service artistically to things and nurturing yes. the potential of processes um, in any capacity that I can. Right. So it helps me sleep, go, you know, fall asleep at night feeling that I've done something useful with my day, that I've contributed to the world in some way. Yeah. If I can like look back and say like, oh, I was of use here. Right. Um, and there have been times where I have not felt abuse, where I knew that I was just there, and like younger Billy was there to like get something from something. Yeah. Um, and there was something innately icky about it to me, yeah. and I couldn't name it back right. then, but I can name it now. And I do think once that shift in priorities um, was made, um, I'm more useful to the room, I'm more useful to the world, and I'm more useful to myself. immediately coming up for me about that is I think part of the reason that's missing from our industry is because I would almost argue that we have a lot of people in this industry who feel like they're doing this. The story that they're telling themselves is they're doing this because they have to. Mm. And I think a lot of those people think like that's the right thing to say. Like I have to do this. I can't do anything else. Like this is all I've ever been good at. This is all I've ever wanted. This has yeah. always been my dream. Mm -hmm. That is not in service to anything. Correct. Except kind of yourself, but I would also argue it's not even serving you yeah. because you're sort of almost enslaving yourself. You know yeah. what I mean? If you're saying like, I'm doing this because I have to. You're like, so right. You're so right. And you know what? I do think that's a version of a script that at least my generation of uh, artists have been taught by their parents. Yes. Like, only do this if you can't see yourself doing anything else. Yes. And I believe like the essence of that to be a positive thing. Yes. And to well, be like, what really drives you? What really inspires you? What's the best way for you to make your mark on the world? Right. I feel like all of those are like more healthy versions of what, yes. like, of what our parents might have been trying to tell us. But, and it's funny, I feel like what you just mentioned is symptomatic in the performer community at large. But I think even more so in the musical theater performer subset of the community. Yeah. And I think it's like something about musical theater being so commercial, uh -huh. yet so artistic yeah. <laughs> at the same time in a way that's um, 
that spoken word theater is not, in a way that film is not in the same way. Right. Creates some perfect, unique storm yeah. of obligation. Yeah. That's um, great. And it's funny, when I hear actors talk about you know, wanting to do other things, being inspired by other things, um, rather, you know, whether it be from an income standpoint or an artistry standpoint, right. it reminds me that you know, we are trained, musical theater artists uniquely are trained to be multitaskers. Yes. Yeah, we have to hold spoken word, sung word, sung lyric, music, dance, yes. all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way that no other artist has to do. And I do feel that opens our brains up to work and uh, to work in multiple ways that we are that we're almost taught to deny. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you know as we unleash those skills into any profession, our skills as musical theater performers can be of use in so many ways. Yes. Um, I see so many uh, colleagues that I've met here at Jen's studio, like who are now like drama therapists, yes. or like run a restaurant, right. with like wonderful levels of authenticity. Yes. And they, they have found their ways to like other parts that don't necessarily fall in line with like the musical theater performance track, but they have found their way down a path that makes them so useful. Yes. Um, that to me is really inspiring. Yeah, I mean, where they found the way that they can best serve the world. You yeah. Know, where all of their unique skills come together to, and what that creates and how that totally. manifests itself. Totally. Absolutely. Um, I'd really love to take an opportunity to discuss color conscious casting, but also in uh, contrast to colorblind casting. Sure. What these terms mean to you see it manifesting themselves in our industry. Yeah. Um, I think of colorblind casting and color conscious. I think Jen also uses the word color visible. Color visible. Um, um, I love the alliteration of color conscious. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I, I use that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I do feel they're two completely different ideas. Um, I came of age in the land of the Cameron Macintosh mm -hmm. epic mega musical. And I considered Cameron Macintosh to be an innovator, a trailblazer in colorblind casting. Yes. Yeah. Um, Leia Salonga could be, you know, slaying it in Miss Saigon and then go straight into Eponine doing some, you know, right. playing someone French. Um, right. That to me was an example of colorblind casting. Right, so um, we're just ignoring exactly race ignoring the together. color of the skin, and someone's presence in a in a process is based solely on skill set. Right. Um, and I feel that's a really admirable thing to achieve. Yeah, I do feel that we are at a point in our uh, in the way we view race, gender, inclusivity, diversity, where colorblind casting is no longer enough. Um, I feel like we, you know everyone talks about the various Hamilton effects, yes. um, and I feel like Hamilton was such a great example of color-conscious casting. We are intentionally putting people of a different culture into these stories, into these characters, because of the statement that that can make, the statement that that visual can make to the world, yes. and we're doing we're making that statement uh, knowingly and intentionally. Yes. Um, so to me, I am really excited in, about this age of color conscious casting that I feel like we're in. Yeah. Um, and it really, in my opinion, it, it forces decision makers to really show their cards. Yes. 
because once you see, you cannot unsee. So we are no longer colorblind, we must be color conscious. And it's really shifted audiences, and I think the, in, the industry's barometer in a way, in terms of when they see something on stage, no matter what it is, I feel like more often than not, we expect to see someone of color on stage. Yeah. And it's no longer the observation of, oh, there's an actor of color there. Right. The, the, the statement has shifted to, why are there no actors of color on here? Okay. Yeah. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. Definitely progress that needs to be made. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's a really exciting to acknowledge, time. you know, where we are now. Yeah. That things have changed. Totally. I think that sort of colorblind idea is very 90s. Of yeah. like, I don't see race. <laughs> <laughs> right? You remember, like, that was the thing to say? Absolutely. When everyone just lied. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Bless us, bless us all. Yes, we, we were all trying, but but no, you do see race, and yeah. that's okay. Like that's wonderful, even. And I think that's sort of the message behind color conscious casting is that let's not pretend that we don't notice or we don't see yeah. it, or but let's be conscious about it and make a concerted effort. And I even think that sometimes, while I agree with you about Karen McIntosh absolutely being an innovator and taking some amazing leaps forward. I also feel like sometimes, unfortunately, it's created sort of a um, set of circumstances to be repeated by every theater. So it's like, in that, the example you gave, Eponine is the token person of color role. You are absolutely right. You know, that's bothersome for a lot of reasons. You know, why is it the street urchin? Why yeah. can't it be pretty Cosette, you know? And you are so right. It really makes me think about what and Jen talked about regarding leaders and followers. Yes. You know, people might be in positions of decision making while still completely following someone else's path. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it's, once again, it shows people's cards. Are you going to be a leader in this? Or are you going to be a follower in this? Exactly. Are you going to be an innovator? Or are you going to be a manufacturer? <laughs> right. Um, and and I, you can feel good about yourself and pat yourself on the back that you cast a person of color when exactly. you actually are just doing exactly what everyone else has done now. Which is not color conscious casting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and ultimately not inclusive, I, I think. No, you're right. That's actually a really good point. So, you know, these are all wonderfully like complicated conversations oh, to yes. have. And I like that we're having them now. Yes. Um, and we're having them, in my opinion, in like a productive way for the first time. Yes. Um, and I feel like the thing that's made that conversation productive, where it hasn't been productive before, is that there's actually a, di a diverse array of opinions having the conversation. It's yes. not a bunch of straight white men having conversations about diversity. Right. And then reaching down, pulling someone up in a particular position to call themselves diverse. Yes. Um, the idea that we can have a diverse array of opinions, points of view, present in the conversation of defining what inclusion means, what diversity means, what being color conscious can mean and can hold and can um, add to a process or to a piece of art is something that we are only having now. Yes. Um, and I'm so excited about that. It is. It's really exciting. And, and you're right, you know, Hamilton did very much lead the charge in that and has, you know, opened up the, the viewpoint of how color conscious casting can be part of the artistic process or part of the artistic interpretation. Yeah, totally. You know, it's all this whole other element that's not in the textbook or, yeah. you know, that hasn't always been explored and there are bold statements to be made. Yeah, because, you know, 
it's been said that there are no news stories. Right. Um, and I believe that to a certain degree. And in a in an industry that's reliant on storytelling yeah. <laughs> as a ways of keeping the industry alive. If there are no new stories, we must change and vary who gets to tell them. Yes. Um, so I feel like we're at a point where that's happening. Um, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. So when you were talking about not comparing yourself earlier, I, I think one of the big ways to do that is to learn how to celebrate other people's successes. Yes. So that's why it's so important to me to share successes and failures on this show because I think, I mean, A, I literally get to sit here and practice celebrating other people's successes, but then our greater TDQ community gets to practice that. And I think that we also, as the people having these successes, need to practice sharing them unapologetically. Because yes. it can be really hard. You, totally. You kind of want to apologize and be like, but it's not that great. Yeah. <laughs> Apologizing for our greatness, something yes. we learn in college. <laughs> yes, people people in this industry do it a lot. And then, you know, I love to share failures because I think that we need to remove the, the shame around them. Yeah. And we need to kind of celebrate them too because what a great learning opportunity. So I, I think that for season two, I would like to steal a Tim Ferriss-ism and ask your favorite failure. That's awesome. Um, I am completely on your train in terms of celebrating the failures as much as the success. Because for me, I do think those two things go hand in hand yes. and have continued to go hand in hand. And when you mentioned wanting me to talk about this, when I tried to unpack or like choose a failure, <laughs> um, uh, I had trouble yeah. because every failure in on my path, at least, led to one of my greatest successes. Yeah. So I guess I'll talk about something that I consider to be a failure that led to a real highlight in my path. Yeah. I guess 20, 2012, I was cast in a really, really exciting project that was happening over at the Old Globe in San Diego. Um, it was called The Last Goodbye. It's still called The Last Goodbye. And it was billed as a mashup of Romeo and Juliet text with Jeff Buckley music. Um, it was a really exciting project. I you know, went through the rigmarole of being submitted by my agent and, you know, kept getting passed on through various levels of the process, um, and I ended up getting the gig. Um, and I was really excited about it because I'm, I love new work, and I also love the classics. Yeah. So this was a point where I, when I, where I saw those things meeting, and that doesn't really happen a lot. Yeah. So The Last Goodbye was such a an exciting combination of the old and the new. Um, and it was being helmed by art by creatives that I consider to be like at the forefront of the of the art form. Alex Timbers was directing, Sonia Tai was choreographing, Kate Waters, who was this stage combat goddess in London, was doing all the fight choreography. Um, Kimmel was adapting the script, and it, it was just everyone I wanted to be in a room with was going to be in that room. Yeah. Um, so I got to the room, <laughs> and I realized that I was surrounded. I was looking to my left and to my right. <laughs> I realized that I was surrounded people with people who either excelled in Shakespeare 
were like heavy hitters in like the contemporary dance world or who had like kicked their faces in like a dozen Broadway shows. Yeah. And or were like insane face melting rock musicians. Yeah. And I was none of those things. I was the person, I quickly cast myself, cast Billy, not my track, but Billy, as the person who impostered his way into the room yeah. as someone who could pass in all of these things but didn't excel in any of them. And I had, that was a story that I kept telling myself when I walked into the room every day. I remember getting to the rehearsal room every day, half an hour early. Um, no one else, like no other cast members were there. And I would like sit and stretch and just tell him, just like replaying like the script of like, don't fuck it up. Yeah. Like, don't show how much of an imposter you are. Oh yeah, that imposter, she's mean <laughs> she's sometimes. She's mean, she's mean. And I, I've come to embrace the imposter syndrome. Yeah. But then, terrified. And I consider the big failure of that process was me believing the lie I told myself. Yeah. Um, I considered that to be, in, hi in hindsight, a failure. The idea that I allowed myself to go through a process with all these wonderful people. Like, yeah. I genuinely enjoyed everyone I was working with, but I couldn't enjoy everyone I was or anyone I was working with because I was operating from a place of terror. Not just fear, terror! Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I look back at the process, and, you know, I even look back at, like, the bootleg recording that I have of the show. <laughs> um, as I, like, literally can, like, watch myself back and say, like, oh, I did fine. Right, right. <laughs> um, but um, that ended up being like one of the most unhappy moments of my career. Yeah. Not because I didn't believe in the product that we were doing. I just felt that I was out of place doing it. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, like there are no wrong turns because that was the pro that was the um, the piece where I met Alex Timbers for the first time, and Alex uh, then cast me in a production of Here Lies Love, which was a new David Byrne Imelda Marcos musical at the Public, which um, ended up being the most. Um, formative, fruitful, inspiring, and like hands down my favorite artistic experience that I think I'll ever have. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I had to pass through the purgatory of Last Goodbye to get to Here Lies Love, and it was worth it. Yes, <laughs> definitely. I, I think that you have to have that, that battle with the imposter yeah. in order to figure out how this relationship is going to work. Yeah, totally. Because you have to accept that, that she's going to be there with you, and yeah. it's like, what is this? What is this going to be like? Yeah. And it's funny, I guess, the, the only other... I, I can honestly say that I never felt that way in a room again. Yeah. The way that I felt um, going through rehearsals, even through performances of The, of the Last Goodbye, yeah. I, I kind of made a promise to myself to not let myself feel that way again. Right. And there was one time where I got close. Mm -hmm. um, and it was when I was doing um, the King and I revival at Lincoln Center. Uh -huh. Once again, a piece of art that I was incredibly proud of being a part of, yeah. surrounded by people that I loved, that I believed in, and that, that inspired me, um, being in a place that inspired me. But I knew my role within the process, I was swinging 11 male dancer tracks. I knew that that is not where I was useful. Right. I knew that that... Um, was not where I could be of use to anyone else in the room. Yeah. Um, and once again, I felt I felt that little uh, like 
coal, piece of coal, like in my gut, like yeah. saying, like, "Oh, this is not right." Um, so I chose to leave. Yeah. And it was I had to like unpack the idea of like, "Oh, this is your Broadway debut. Are you gonna like leave the show? Are you gonna leave of your own volition?" And then I had to think back, and I said, "You know." I have a thriving photography business and I make more money right. out on Broadway, right. so I don't need the money. Right. Um, if I'm not feeling that I'm not just unhappy, but like not of use, right. like I will not sleep well at night. Um, and I actually have the control and the ability to remove myself from the situation. Yeah. So I chose to. And literally, <laughs> the, that same week, um, my good friend Jasper Grant dropped, in, dropped a director opportunity in my lap. Wow. And that really set me on the course to really being able to own my, own my trajectory as a director. Yeah. Because um, I knew that when I left King and I, I knew that A, I wanted to not swing, but knew that I also wanted to direct. Yeah. And it was a big leap because I had nothing to catch my... I had no net to catch me in director land. Right. I just had to like make myself available. Right. And the week I turned in my notice, something caught me. Yeah. I mean, but I also think that because you had had that impostery experience, yeah. you know, before you were able to identify that wasn't necessarily what was happening. Yeah. King and I, you you could identify. Okay, so I. I could self-diagnose a lot sooner. Yeah. It's yeah. not that I don't feel like I'm of this is that I'm, I'm not in service in this yeah. way. That seems to be such a big part of your why. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it, because you could identify that's not what it was. Because otherwise you might have been like, no, stick stick it out. This yeah. is imposter syndrome. Right. You know? I'm on Broadway. Right. Yeah. I should be really happy right now. Right. Yeah. And what are we celebrating today? What are we celebrating today? Um, I am celebrating sitting in this room. Um, because here at JWS is where I've been lucky enough to spend many, um, many hours this summer. Um, and getting, you know, I've been keeping myself busy in performer, director land, and I've been away from the studio for a long time. This is the first time that I've been able to devote consecutive months to teaching at JWS. Yeah. And it's really inspired me and opened me up in so many wonderful ways. So I'm celebrating being a part of this community again in a way that I haven't been able to as much before. Um, and now that I'm about to leave it again, <laughs> um, I start rehearsals on Tuesday for another uh, project where I go back and put my performer hat back on. Um, I'm doing uh, a new musical called Soft Power at the Public Theater. Congratulations! Um, thank you, I'm so fucking excited. Yay. It is a hell yes. <laughs> it is a fuck yes. yes. <laughs> um, it's a show that I did in LA and San Francisco last year and it's now making its way to New York and I couldn't be more excited to share it with the world again. Um, it is a purpose-driven piece. It is a piece uh, helmed by creatives that I would walk off a cliff for. I trust them yeah. so much. Um, and it is a piece that doesn't just talk about things, it doesn't just start conversations, it has them on stage for people to lean in and participate with. Um, and they're all conversations that are uncomfortable, necessary, yeah. and very timely. Um, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I hope everyone gets to check it out. Oh, I'll definitely be there. Yay! I'm so excited. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for doing this, Billy. I know you're 
super busy and they have a lot going on, but I am just so thrilled that I had the chance to have this conversation with you. Thank you. This, thank you. This is a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you. That means a lot. Mutant powers are activating all around. I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how great is Billy? I'm sure you're already dying to hear more about him, so I highly encourage you to scroll on down to the show notes and click the link to his episode on Matthew Carey's podcast, Studio Time, which we referred to a few times in today's episode. And the next time you are in the market for headshots, check out Billy B Photography, also listed in the show notes. You're sure to have an absolute blast with Billy and get wonderful shots you're proud of. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that if you enjoyed today's episode, that you'll consider sharing it with a friend and rating and reviewing TDQ on iTunes. I'm Lily Torre, and this has been The Dreaded Question. 